Welcome to Tilted, a Lean In podcast. Each week, we explore the uneven playing field, the gender bias that lurks in unexpected places, the impact it has on our everyday lives, and what happens when women lean in and start driving change. I'm your host, Rachel Thomas, co-founder and president of Lean In. Sunlin shot, and she scores, even up again, but it also means that the USA could win the World Cup on this next kick. Chastain will take it. She missed a penalty kick against China in the Algarve Cup, and they lost that game. For those of you who don't remember, or weren't on the planet yet, that's a clip of the winning goal at the U.S. Women's World Cup in 1999. It was a huge moment. The most watched soccer match in television history at the time. It electrified fans of all ages, and it signaled a new era for women's soccer, and women's sports in general. The 99ers were heroes to so many of us. I know they were to me. Yet at the same time, a lot didn't change. They had to fight hard for everything. From uniforms that fit, you heard me right, to the type of travel and meals that world-class athletes deserve, and let's be honest, that the men were already getting. We're going to dig into that fight, into how far we've come, and how far we have to go. Today I'm joined by two members of the 91 and 99 FIFA Women's World Cup champion team, Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain. Woo! That's right in your ear right there. Um, That is. Fast forward to today. Both women are successful sports commentators and run programs dedicated to developing girls as soccer players and even more importantly, as leaders. Julie is the author of Choose to Matter, Being Courageously and And Fabulously fabulously You, you. a fantastic leadership book for girls. Thank you. We also have two members of the U.S. national women's team who also play for the North Carolina Courage. Power forward Crystal Dunn <laughs> and star midfielder Sam Ewis. Welcome, ladies. Aww. Let's start with the 99ers, Julie and Brandy. When I was growing up in Pennsylvania, I had to play on a boys' team. And then when I got to high school, and I won't say the boys weren't better, but they were, but I still couldn't play because my mom refused to let me play with boys, which had a big impact that really stopped me from playing any more soccer. What was it like for you guys growing up? Well, I, most of the sports I played when I was younger were just in the street in front of my house with the neighborhood kids. And, of course, the majority were boys. So, <laughs> But organized sports, I played initially soccer with girls, and baseball I played with boys. So it was a mixed bag. Yeah. And did I, you have girls soccer as well? Well, I grew up in Southern California, which I was really lucky because it was just when AYSO was kind of launching there and girls, boys. And so I played with girls, actually. But there are many teammates of ours, Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly. They grew up playing with boys. So then you both made it to the U.S. national team in the 80s. Tell me, what was that like? Uh, Lots of men's uniforms, shiny, extra leftover sweatsuits that nobody wanted. Uh, Super awesome, actually. So let me get this straight. You were playing on the U.S. women's national team, the best players in the country, and you were wearing men's hand-me-downs. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Tools? Yeah. i would never got that distinction, but they're essentially, you know, <laughs> sleeves that were supposed to be short sleeves were like three-quarter length. <laughs> I look great in shorts that are down to my knees, too. Good luck. Okay, so you're playing in 
however you got there, you're playing in men's uniforms. Mm-hmm. What else about the experience? How was it like to be on the road? How many fans were there? Talk us through what that felt like. Well, we played in the first World Cup in 1991 in China. And we go, and and literally I had to tell my dad, my dad was not going to go. He's like, oh, honey, that's a really busy time of the month for me and work. And I was like, no, dad, the World Cup's pretty big. It's kind of a big deal. Because we're playing in front of packed houses and there's a lot of enthusiasm in China for it. And then we get home and there was no ticker tape parade at all. There was three people to go. And that one was the bus driver. One was our U.S. <laughs> soccer guy, Tom Meredith. So we would be in these red fleece tops. Very distinctive. You could see us. We would be every middle seat going down the entire plane. A red so strip. I got to a point, and this is before like social media. I mean, can you imagine posting that picture on social media? It would have been perfect. But what we would do instead, because we didn't have social media, we would take it on our little film camera. <laughs> And I, we would make copies of it and send it to the Federation and be like, this is what I'm talking about. Wow. Well, like, and then can on, can we sudden. just get a seat before we, we – would, they would not give us seats. So we'd show up to the airport as a big group, and they'd be like, oh, you're in 25E, 26E, 27E. And it was all smoking. We were at the back of the yeah. plane with smokers. So you're athletes oh in the back gosh. of the plane and yeah. smoking. Yeah. Center row. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I'm like, it just takes – just give us a seat, please. So that wouldn't happen today. (laughs) So I have so many things I want to ask at once. So jump in, though. Why would that not happen today? Just make it clear for everybody listening. I think just the way the game and the sport has evolved, thanks to these ladies here, I think what they experienced in the early stages was the sport is so new. We want to put the sport on the map. And I think at some point you were probably just like, oh, well, this is the norm. Maybe this is just how it goes kind of thing. And I think... These women as pioneers have paid the way for us being like not okay with just this is a norm. Flights and like hotels and things like that. We're really trying to push for us to be taken seriously and put in those those top, you know, five. I think think it was the happy to be there, you know, the air quotes of happy to be there. Yeah, Yeah. then that quickly faded. (laughs) No, 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 I know, but I think that was initially. Okay. So fast forward (laughs) eight years, it's 99. And I mean, I remember this so vividly. You guys won. It felt like you shattered that glass ceiling forever. I'm Brandy. I remember you on the cover of so many magazines, you know, down on the ground, shirt ripped off, sports bra on, and kind of all your glory. So eight years had gone by since 91, and you were like, we're just happy to be here. And now you are, by any measure, the best women's franchise on the planet. How did it feel after that win? Did anything start to change, or what was that like? I mean, honestly— It was such a gift to be with these women. And I think I get emotional thinking about it now because it was such a family, not just your immediate family. It was a family situation. And that was the greatest part of what happened. What about you, Julie? Yeah. And I mean, things were were much better by then, but not as good as we wanted them to be. So we had a big contract negotiations after 99 where we actually threatened not to come to the Olympics in 2000. And that was kind of the turning point because then finally we were, we called it, we're driving the bus, baby. (laughs) Right? The team was popular. We had some leverage finally. Cheddar cheese and cookies (laughs) at lunch because that was Julie's big beef. (laughs) Well, yeah, totally. The food. Actually, food is actually a huge one. How many years? I just want cheddar cheese slices. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I wanted. Cookies. Real yeah. chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> These things matter. They all add up. You know? I, would, I would walk through the line, and that was our refrain. How many years? How many years? <laughs> but, 
<laughs> Mia would look at the craft cheese slices and she'd be like, how many? How many years? <laughs> really? Just cheddar. I got the Cabot cheese sponsorship after that. Oh, actually. perfect. We had some leverage right. finally. Um, and in the past, you know, they would always argue people don't care about women's soccer. That We market it and no one comes. And um, what are we supposed to do? It's a losing, you know, proposition. And we're like, no, it's not. We go into cities all the time and no one knows we're there. And so it's kind of the cause and effect. If you market it and build it, they right. will come. But they weren't, we felt, marketing or building uh, and putting an investment down on it. And so when we finally showed them, see what happens when, because we had an organizing committee that spent three, four years going to all the clubs and, and really getting to the grassroots level and saying the Women's World Cup's coming to the United States for the first time and you got to get in on it. And and then you see what happens when they put a little uh, energy and um, thought behind it and investment. And so it basically proved our point. So after all these years of arguing, this is a special group and a special team that you should be capitalizing on. I think they realized, yeah, we need to do better. And so, but we had to kind of force them there. Right. And did you, you reached out to Billie Jean King for help, yes, didn't you? Yeah, and what did she, was what was great. her advice? <laughs> I met her in, at an event in 1995. And it was uh, right when we were at the point of like, okay, th- we can't do this. We're getting paid $10 a day. Every time we take something to them, they kind of brush us off. And um, she ended up at this event telling this small group about her dollar contracts and starting the Women's Tennis Association and how they broke away. And I was like, oh my God. This is our issue. Not that we wanted to break away, but she essentially said this isn't good enough and we're going to do something about it as players. So I'm telling her our story and she's like, Fowdy, wake up. <laughs> and the great thing about Billy is she, um, she doesn't, I tell this story all the time because she's such a gem, right? She doesn't just say, here's what we did and then good luck. And that's the last conversation you have with Billy. She would check in every month. What's going on? Where are you? What can I do to help? This is what I would do. This is what we did. And to this day, she's checking in what's happening with their contract negotiations when they were going through the last round, right? Yes. She she was like, how can I help? What do I need to do? I mean, and that's not just soccer. That's every sport. So, so many sports. So, yeah, that friendship was, it became like our theme in contract negotiations. She would say, if you had a blank canvas, not for you, what would you build for the next generation? And so the lawyer would be like, the ghost of Village and King is not. Because <laughs> every time we'd be like, nope, that's not good enough for the next generation. He'd be like, the ghost of Village and King is back. So switching gears a bit, Crystal and Sam, so you were some of those millions of girls watching Julie and Brandy and the 99ers. Um, what did that mean for you? And how has that impacted the way you think about the game? Yeah, um, I remember watching the game with my family in the living room. Were you um, even born, Sam? Yeah, <laughs> I was seven. Seven, okay. Um, and my older sister played soccer as well, so all four of us were in the living room watching. And I remember, the thing I remember most vividly is my dad standing up when Brandy scored and, like, touching the ceiling and, like, as a seven-year-old, I was like, oh, my God, this is a huge deal. My dad's touching the ceiling. This is so <laughs> crazy. But I had watched games leading up to that World Cup with my sister, and I remember at literally six or seven years old saying, we're going to be on the national team someday. We're going to do this. And we started telling people that. We started telling, like, the neighbors and our friends. And at the time, I think those people were like, what team? Like, where? And so winning the 99 World Cup really brought that to light for everyone in our little soccer world. Um, I remember fighting to be number nine with my club team when we got to pick our uniforms because we loved Mia Hamm and just had posters of Michelle Akers on my wall, reading everybody's books as they came out. 
I grew up really being a, this huge fan of these women who now are sitting right across from me. And I think that definitely had a huge impact on not only my own goals and dreams as a kid, but I think the fact that they were actually going to become possible and um, having soccer as like a viable career path as I grew up. <laughs> that must be amazing, though, like to hear them talk about what an inspiration you were. It literally probably changed the course of Sam's life, knowing that she could actually be a professional player and play at that level. It's and you, amazing. And you know what's cool, too, is you get people who come up that aren't necessarily <laughs> soccer players or professional soccer players or who just say that day mm-hmm. and that moment and that tournament made me realize I could do it. Awesome. And it being a lot of different That's things, so cool. of course, mm-hmm. right? Like. Yes, I can. And so that is the, the the cool thing, I think, about that moment is, you. I mean, we've seen men doing that in big stadiums in front of big crowds, but it was really the first time you've seen mm-hmm. a team of women doing that. And that was something we really wanted to make the standard for other women's sports. So Crystal and Sam, obviously this all started you know, early on in, in the 90s, but you have really, you know, pardon the pun, took the ball and started to really run with it. And you've driven a lot of change for the team. Could you talk us through you know, that process and what you've accomplished and how you're feeling about it? Yeah, I think Sam and I came on to, probably to the national team around the same time. So we had a glimpse of what our old contracts were looking like. And then now we have a glimpse of like what the newer contract is looking like. So It's just interesting to see. um, It goes back to the whole, when I first came into the national team, I was fresh out of college. So I was like, oh, this seems like a good life. Like, I'm enjoying it and things are great. And then I think things changed two years after that. And and for me, I was like, oh, I was happy then and I'm way happier now and stuff. So I think it's just, it's all about perspective and, and just continuously, like, asking questions to those and in charge and kind of just being like, this was fine. We're appreciative, but also like, this is not where we want to stay. We're not complacent. We're always trying to move forward and, and add new things to the program and, and just build on that relationship, obviously with U.S. soccer, but also, you know, continuously push them to, to be better and, and have that standard be rose. So I know some other teams have reached out, right? For how, like they've watched what you've been able to accomplish. Can you talk about a couple of the other teams you've reached out and how you've help them or the advice you've given them? It's actually funny. I was just talking to Sam earlier today about how I played overseas for a short spell, but just how they viewed um, American soccer players was so eye-opening because I'm living here. I've lived here my whole life and then I go overseas and they're like, you guys have paved the way for so, you know, and it's just like, this is in England. And all my teammates were just like, you guys were the first of everything. And that's just how they look at us. They look at us as the women leading leading the charge. And I think that was, they see us and they see that we are pushing for change. And I think that's definitely an effect on a lot of other national teams. That's a segue thing to all of you and just jump in. But fast forward, like 2028, like what do you want for women's soccer? Like, what does it look like? More teams in the NWSL. I would love that. I would love a California, one or two California teams. it's amazing there's not a team here. It's expensive. I would like to see the league on a regular programming. People can view it if they don't live in a city that has a team, that they can see it with ease and it's accessible to everyone. I mean, the thing that infuriates me to this day is that for example, you say that like it's just one thing that it's <laughs> like they're playing Chile tomorrow. Yeah, night, I know right? we're coming. And um, Chile hosted their World Cup qualifiers in South America, and uh, and they qualified for the World Cup the first time they've ever qualified for the World Cup. 
And what you read in the newspapers is how all the local Chilean organizers were surprised at the outpouring of support and the attendance. And I'm like, again, how many years? How many years are we going to be surprised that if you put a little investment into the Mm -hmm. women's game, there is a return on your investment? Mm -hmm. And so every time I read, and it's everywhere, Mexico, Norway, Sweden, Germany, the UEFA championships, you know, are, sorry, I'm getting fired up. <laughs> hit the table. They're like, stop pounding the table. <laughs> but everything you read is like, oh, we didn't anticipate the viewership or the attendance. Yeah. And like, really? How many years are we going to say this? The great thing about women's soccer is that we do have this wonderful vehicle because the world loves soccer. And so we do have uh, an ability to not only create some talk about investing in women's soccer, but now we're changing the culture that exists all over the world. And I think that was nothing that we, we didn't say, Hey, let's change the culture of the world about how they look at women. But that's been an unbelievable byproduct of what you do every day on the field, Crystal and Sam, and what you do behind in the meeting room when you're doing the line items on the contracts and what Julie's doing with Julie Foudy's Sports Leadership Academy, Mm -hmm. what I do here in my community with my after-school program where I bring collegiate female student-athletes to the playground of underserved girls. We all are doing that. We're changing the culture of how we see women and it's through a vehicle that the world loves. And so I think we have a chance. Yeah. And that's what's exciting. That is exciting. Great point. One of the things that I've observed, and this is not a revelation, but I do think when you think of male superstars and kind of what their careers are like after they play versus what I think is more often the case for women superstars, do you feel that? Like, is that something? I mean, how do you Sorry. miss it, right? I'm, that's my defense mechanism. I'm laughing because it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> right. this conversation. Yeah. Seriously, doors have been opened in a way that they never would have been. I honestly feel from playing on the U.S. women's national team that I'm respected by my male counterparts. They, they look at women's soccer and they're like, damn, those women are legitimate. Those athletes know that because they understand the commitment and what you have to put into becoming an elite athlete. They get it. The paychecks don't show that. And when I go to events where it's like all these former male athletes, and I'm thinking, I am working coaching youth soccer. I'm coaching youth soccer as part of the job I do now. One, because I love soccer, and Julie can attest, like, I'm a freak about soccer, and I love the girls. She is and, a freak. And, and, <laughs> but yeah, that's the part of the of course. Um, but that's my job, right? And I think about these men that I'm meeting, and it's like they're driving these. And fancy cars and nice homes, that is not the end result for me. That's not the end I want. The end is that we've made something better. We've done something that's influenced a lot of people. And that doesn't pay the bill. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, mm-hmm. it doesn't pay the bill. It feels internally amazing, and I love it. And it's why I get so fired up about coming to your game tomorrow mm-hmm. night and being a part of the, my youth team and why I'm so irate on the sideline when the ref makes the wrong call <laughs> on my 12-year-old games, you know, because I'm in. I'm invested, but it doesn't pay the bills. And when I see those athletes, I think, wow, if I only were a man Mm -hmm. playing professional sports, what would my life be like now? And it would be totally different. 
from listening to you guys speak and, you know, just from the research we've done and just kind of knowing this, that camaraderie, both on the team when you play together, but it kind of pours over to the next generation of player and the next generation of player. And I know you you guys, you younger players are thinking even a lot about the next generation, what that means. Can you talk about that kind of? that really palpable camaraderie you all have? Because it's pretty special. Yeah, I think it is really special. I think something that's unique about this team is that it's kind of like everybody's team. It's it's still Julie and Brandy's team. It's also Mm -hmm. our team. And it's also the young girls Mm -hmm. who will be on it someday's team. It's and it's also everyone who watches. It's the country's team. It's everyone's team. Um, So I think that it's almost easy to pick up things that traditions and um, standards that they had upheld and to pass them along to some of the players who are still on the team that maybe had played with them because we we want to uphold those things I think we still do the same cheer um Mm -hmm. that they always did why do you think sports matters so much to girls and regardless of the level they play at one of the reasons why it's so important for young girls to be involved in sports is because it shows them that it's okay to be competitive and to want to win I think sometimes girls in tv and movies maybe are painted as nice and pretty and just et cetera. Perfect. (laughs) And I feel like sports and soccer, it's like, let's go out and get dirty. You can want to win. You can want to be scrappy and you don't have to be perfect. You can just have, it's fun. Yes. But it's also like, it's okay to really, really want to win. And it's okay to, to be yourself and express yourself and to slide tackle somebody. And all those things are okay. And I feel like it's important that girls know that and get to experience that. And I feel like sports does that. So Julie, Brandy, Sam, and Crystal, thank you so much for being here. I don't know about you, but I really got a lot out of this Mm. conversation and I think our listeners did as well. So thank thank you. you. Thank Thank you. you Thanks for all you're doing. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. After talking to the soccer players, I wanted to know more about the history of women's sports because, to be honest, I didn't know enough. The WNBA started around the same time women's soccer was taking off, and it has grown into a really successful sports league. In fact, the most successful women's sports league in the United States. I figured I could learn a lot talking to someone who understands where the WNBA has been and where it's going. And it turns out I was right. So I'm really excited. I am here with Terry Jackson, the executive director of the Women's National Basketball Player Association. Terry has also worked at the NCAA, the University of the District of Columbia on Title IX compliance and NCAA compliance, and taught courses on women in sports. Terry, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So a few weeks ago, I sat down with a group of former and current U.S. women's national team players, and I was struck by how far they've come. Over the last 20 years, it was actually really amazing, but also how much there's really still left to do. Is that the story of women's sports in your view? I think it probably is. Um, First of all, I wish I had been a fly on the wall with that group because that sounds like an amazing panel. 
to have been a part of. But um, I do think we've advanced the ball quite a bit, pun intended, and yet there's just so much. When I look at women's tennis, when I look at soccer— when I look at and think about the issues that women's hockey is wrestling with, and of course where we are as the Women's National Basketball Players Association and and my player membership, yes, we are on the hearts and minds of fans and growing viewerships for sure. But I think in terms of coverage, both print media, the broadcast media, yes, there is just so much more for us to do and and to ensure that these women are athletes first and definitely household names. Soccer really started to take off in the 90s, it sounds like, late 80s, 90s. What else was happening in women's sports at the same time? And is that seen as a period of a lot of change? Definitely. Um, Well, let's talk about Title IX. So Title IX passes in 1972. This is the legislation that prohibits sex discrimination in education. But it made some particular advances for women, for girls and women in sports, particularly the high school and at the college level. By the late 90s, we have a full generation of young women and young men who have seen Title IX implemented and who've understood the impact. And so 1996, the United States is hosting the Summer Games, and it's happening in Atlanta. And I'm going to go back to women's basketball because women's soccer is is taking off. Women's basketball, the USAB women's team, has won the gold. And so much attention, all eyes on this team because it's the U.S. team and they're playing in the U.S. And so the viewership and the attendance is probably out the roof. It's incredible. They've got wonderful personalities on on this team. And um, some interesting things are happening in business, too, because it's not just the general fans uh, who are paying attention, but... Big business is paying attention, too. So you've got Nike, who is about to debut Air Swoops, which is this the shoe that's named after Cheryl Swoops, um, who would be a big Olympian and and big in the in the WNBA. And that's huge. I still have my swoops till today. I love that. And, well, the NBA is paying attention. And that's why, you know, within the year— uh, the WNBA gets launched in ni- now we're truly in the in the late 90s. This is 1996, 1997, I think is is of course is their first season. And so it was all the right things that are happening. So Brandy Chastain, who obviously scored that goal back in 99, I remember her on all the you know magazine covers with her shirt ripped off. but she was talking really openly at the end of our discussion about how she was a world class athlete best of the best, and she coaches now. When she looks at other athletes, male athletes, that are world-class, they have crazy jobs, endorsements. It's a very different life. It's a a very different life. The opportunities that are available to boys and men are very different from what's available to girls and women. And they understand that. Um, they know, though, that they will be the trailblazers that need to make it better for those are to come. You know, I've got interesting conversations with my player membership. There are veterans in the game, veterans in the league 
who will press issues and and raise concerns about where the league is and how professional it needs to be. And what they will say is they end each sentence with, I want it better for the next generation. I may not still be here. I mean, they understand also that their life in their sport is also considerably shorter than the guys. Maybe the guys have five or six years, um, and I'm talking basketball, and and maybe, you know, in the WNBA, it's two or three, God, maybe is it four. Really only two or three? Or well, the, the average is, is probably right around three and four. Okay. But they are committed in their focus that this needs to be better for who comes next. That was one of the things I was so struck by talking to um, the soccer players was uh, both the camaraderie they have, I think, because it is harder. And, you know, really sticking together and this idea of paying it forward for girls and kind of for the next generation of players, I was really moved by. I do think that's something that is unique to women's sports. Absolutely. Even with Title IX, this is still many generations forward who who feels as though this is something that they're not entitled to it necessarily, that this is um, something that they have to protect a legacy that they need to protect and ensure is 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 um, they can pass it down to the to the next generation. The one thing that I say is um, about about my players is they are they are the best of the best. They are the most elite. They are the most accessible, which would almost be contradictory. But I think girls to young women to women um, at the professional level are raised to believe that this is an opportunity that they should be grateful for. And so what they do is they they internalize that and they take a very all-hands-on-deck approach. I think that I have perhaps one of the most engaged player membership in terms of unions. Because they want their league to be so successful, they desire for it to be better. They demand for it to be better. And they'll do quite a bit to ensure that. That is so interesting. I'm talking to the soccer players. Certainly there's big hills that they have had to climb and continue to climb around being paid fairly, treated fairly. But it was really a lot of the little things that wore them down having a smaller per diem when they were on the road, staying in hotels that weren't as nice. Exactly. You know, when we talk about the collective bargaining agreement, we talk about salary and compensation. We talk about the player experience, and we talk about health and safety issues. And and salary and compensation is a given. You know what that is. I'm talking about mo' money, mo' money, right? But, but on the player experience piece, I'm talking about how they're treated. I'm talking about how they're valued. What's interesting is once their season wraps up, they probably have a week or two at home with family before they are packing their bags and going to Turkey, to Israel, to Korea, to China, to Russia, to Poland, because they play in the WNBA. But to make a living for themselves and their families, they are forced to go overseas. Um, that is a reality. That is what I'm wrestling with. What is the scheduling like? Are, are teams looking to schedule to avoid paying the full per diem for the day? There are things like that that come up. Um, 
Division I athletes from major colleges, from mid-major colleges, they have a training table. Nutrition is valued. Good food and good eating habits are valued. And I'd love to see that at the professional level. So wait, let me slow down and get this right. When you go pro, it gets worse? Well, when you go pro, I think it's a little uneven. Interesting. I think it's a bit inconsistent. With respect to to our league, we've got 12 teams. And um, there are some teams who are just hitting on all cylinders. They understand it. They understand what it means to be an athlete. They understand what it means to be athlete and woman. And they look to care for and they look to provide that kind of structure and some systems around it so that these folks feel like this is a professional opportunity. Other teams, when I'm talking about uneven, when you're practicing perhaps in a high school, when you're practicing in a rec center, when you don't really have the proper or appropriate locker room space because maybe you're sitting in the hall. I mean, it is that uneven and that inconsistent. And and my thought is, wow, if we could just have some standard operating requirements for each team boy, this would look a lot different. This would look and feel a lot different at the professional level. And I think that's what they want. Yeah, this theme of kind of just feeling lucky to be there and then kind of what journey women go on, whether they're female athletes or really in almost any industry where they realize that's no longer good enough is super interesting. Just when they hit that moment in time or, you know, the trailblazers who hit that early and start really pushing for more. I think that's super interesting. In my mind, the WNBA has really done a lot to put women's sports on the map and keep them on the map in the U.S. Fast forward 10 years for us. What does the next generation of the WNBA look like? Wow. That's an awesome question. First of all, I better still be around. I better still be um, a part of this. The women in this league have looked back at what the trailblazers and pioneers before them have done, and they are taking so seriously this legacy and looking to see how they will move it forward. Ten years from now, five years from now, we will have reached that level of fairness with revenue sharing. We will be leveraging the relationships that the NBA has and using them to the the benefit of, of WNBA players. WNBA players will be household names and different will be okay. What can we do at home? Everybody who's listening, what I need you to do is follow the women's game. Go to high school sports, go to college sports, go to college women's basketball games. And then I want you to follow these players who are going to get drafted from your favorite college, Stanford, UConn, Notre Dame, Baylor, Tennessee, wherever they've gone. I want you to follow them to the WNBA. I want you to follow their career with the same zeal in which you watch them as high school players and then in college. I want you to buy season tickets. I want you to tweet and tell a friend to watch the game and how much you've enjoyed the game and buy jerseys and wear them proudly and talk about this in the supermarket, at the water cooler, um, and again, use your social media proudly. We need you to get the word out. 
what's crazy or what's interesting about that is you want them to do what we already do for the men. Yeah, something like that. Thank you. It's been roughly 20 years since the 99ers won the World Cup and the WNBA played its first game. And women in sports clearly have come a long way. They've broken records. They've dazzled fans. But more than that, they've shown girls what's possible when you play hard and believe you can get all the way to the top. After listening to my panel with Julie and the other players, my daughter Haley said she didn't realize how hard they had worked so girls could play. And so she could play. She's 11, but she nailed it. And the players know this. That's why they are working so hard for the next generation. And that's why they take their legacy so seriously. They feel lucky to play at the highest level, and they should. But they also know that women deserve more. Despite all the progress, women athletes still get paid less than men, and they still get fewer big endorsement deals. And when they retire, even as the best players in the world, they have fewer opportunities. One big problem is that women's sports don't get promoted the same way men's sports do. The powers that be assume women can't draw big audiences, so they invest less in marketing and broadcasting women's sports. But that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We need to start putting as much energy and money into women's sports as we do into men's sports. That's the only way we'll know how far women athletes can go. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Jordan Bell and Cheryl Morris. Special thanks to Katie Miserani, Ali Bohr, Megan Rooney, and Sarah Maisel from the Lean In team, and Laura Mayer at Stitcher. Our engineer is Andy Christens, and our music was composed by Casey Holford. This has been Tilted, and I'm your host, Rachel Thomas. <laughs>